The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Avery Schwitz, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 14th, 2023. This past Wednesday marked 21 years since the first detainees arrived at the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. For today's Archive episode, I chose an interview from March 2015 to highlight the anniversary. In the episode, Cody Poplin sat down with General Michael Leonard, the first commander of the Guantanamo Detention Facility to discuss the early days of Guantanamo, its development and controversy in the political sphere, calls for its dissolution, and more. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 21st, 2015. That was Major General Michael Leonard you just heard, the first commander of the U.S. detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. General Leonard deployed to Guantanamo Bay as commander of Joint Task Force 160 in January of 2002 with the mission to construct and operate the detention facilities for Taliban and Al-Qaeda detainees. He is now one of the most prominent voices calling for the closure of the prison facility. This week, we invited General Leonard onto the show to describe those early days before Gitmo became Gitmo, how he managed the facility, and what he thinks should be done with the remaining detainees. In the end, General Liner offers advice for avoiding mistakes when conducting critical missions and making hard national security choices. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 115, General Michael Leonard on closing Gitmo. So at this point in time, we're pretty far down the road at Guantanamo Bay, um, but I think our, our listeners would be interested in, in maybe going back through some of the early days um, before the facility became a political symbol. Um, and, and you were there at the, at the beginning, is that correct? That's correct. I was the uh, individual who was charged with constructing Guantanamo and operating it until that it could be taken over by an army-led joint task force. And so I was the first joint task force commander. And how did you come to, to be at Guantanamo? Yeah, that, I think it's probably the best thing to do, Cody, is to, is to, to start with uh, 9-11, which is, of course, one of those, those key key points in, in America's history, and think about uh, how the American people uh, were feeling after 9-11. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the mood at that time was is that we were, we were angry and we were afraid. We were very frightened. Uh, we were facing an enemy that we did not understand 
and uh, that we had very little clarity about. So, of course, there was a decision to go into Afghanistan and uh, to try to take out the Al-Qaeda training camps there and at the same time take, about, take down the Taliban government. And, um, and so that was ongoing in the, uh, in the fall of 2001. And during that uh, uh, combat operation, uh, we began picking up individuals that didn't seem to have a very good reason for being there. And uh, so we started to capture more and more uh, individuals from uh, other countries. Right. And um, at the same time, uh, there were some significant infrastructure deficiencies in Afghanistan. So providing medical treatment or security for them was problematic. Uh, the weather was getting uh, worse. Uh, many of them were being picked up with frostbite and se severe wounds. Some of them old wounds actually left over from previous combats. So there was a decision that they were going to have to go someplace else. And at that point, uh, and all I can report on this uh, because I wasn't personally involved, is, is that there seemed to be a fairly significant policy debate uh, in Washington where they ought to go. Uh, essentially, either should, should we build something in Afghanistan, uh, should we bring them back to the U.S., or should we take them someplace else? Now... At that point, I was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I was a commanding general for an organization called Second Force Service Support Group. And I went to my boss and I said, I think that someplace else is going to be Guantanamo. And I based that estimate on a couple of different things. First off, every administration in the past two or three decades has used Guantanamo for the flotsam and jetsam of U.S. foreign policy. When you don't know what to do with somebody, you take them to Guantanamo. And I knew that because in 1995, I'd been sent down as a colonel to command the Cuban and Haitian migrant camps. Right. So uh, I had the background and the knowledge. And, and I also knew that 2nd FSSG uh, was the organization that was designated by the Joint Staff as the organization that would go down and uh, reconstruct migrant camps if we ever had a migrant event. Uh, the Army was is the organization that's doctrinally responsible for running prisoner of war camps um, and at the same time i had a pretty good idea that if if something had to happen in a hurry uh, the marine corps would be called on to do it now you know there's there's this is no no hit on on the army or anything else but it's just simply the fact that uh i felt that we would probably be sent down and i also felt that in the minds of our policymakers, the distinction between a uh, migrant, an illegal migrant, and a prisoner of war is a fairly minor distinction, whereas, in fact, it is not a minor distinction. There's a huge legal and policy difference between the two. But my instincts were that we were probably going to get tapped to do it. And, uh, and that's what happened. Um, and so you, you got the order... When was that? Okay, yes, yeah, that's what I was going to go into. Sure. We got the order. Initially, when I told my boss, he said it is never going to happen. It will not happen. Uh, this is, you know, this is just not possible. Uh, the Army will be called on to build a prisoner of war camp someplace, either in the United States or elsewhere in Afghanistan, and that's what's going to happen. The following day, I received a call to take uh, a small group of my staff and go on a site survey down to Guantanamo. That was on the 21st of December. 
we were told to go down there and evaluate the possibility of constructing a, uh, uh, a uh, at that point they called an enemy a prisoner of war camp. And uh, uh, we went down there and uh, I, uh, I, the, I, I looked at the area uh, and the, the guidance we were getting at that time was all over the map. Uh, provide a, a, a prison for 100 people, provide a prison for 6,000 people. And, uh, you know, and there was no criterion in terms of what quality to, to, you know, what design criterion to build it to or anything else. But I came back and I said, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we put 20,000, uh, uh, at one point we had almost 100,000 Cuban migrants down there. I said, we can, we can fit an enemy prisoner of war camp down there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's feasible. It's whether it's a good idea or not, it's a completely different issue, but it is uh, from an engineering standpoint and an operational standpoint, it's feasible. Well, uh, over Christmas and New Year, this thing kept going back and forth. And on the 6th of uh, January, we got the order, but the order was kind of interesting because it said that I was to form a joint task force uh, and uh, deploy to Guantanamo and have the first 100 cells built within 96 hours. And that you would be having prisoners, or you would be receiving prisoners. Be prepared to, succeed, uh, to to uh, receive prisoners on the 97th hour. Wow. So obviously, this was a uh, a extraordinarily uh, intense uh, uh, operation during that time. We deployed on the same day we got the operation order, or got the deployment order, and. Um, uh, we went down there, and I used a combination of uh, Navy Seabees, Marine Engineers, Filipino construction workers, and Jamaican steel workers who happened to be on the base at that time. It's a U.S. naval base. Uh, and uh, we took down almost every fence uh, in Guantanamo and used them to uh, construct the, uh, the, the first 100 cells. And the, the site selected was a place called X-Ray. Now the history of X-ray, a lot you'll see, see a lot written on it, Cody, about you know why it was named X-ray. But the the story is actually uh, much more prosaic. Uh, when we were running the Cuban migrant camps, we didn't know how many we were going to build. So each Cuban migrant camp consisted of 2,500 to 3,000 Cuban migrants, and we would give it a, a name based upon the uh, alpha, uh, the military alpha, uh, uh, alphabet. So the first camp was uh, Alpha. Second one was Bravo, et cetera. And we didn't know how far down the alphabet we were going to go. At the same time, we had a number of, of Cuban and Haitian migrants who had criminal records from other places, and we had to build a more secure holding site for them. The other migrant camps were simply camps, and we they had uh, uh, while they had to stay inside those camps at night, during the daytime, they could move back and forth from one camp to another and visit each other, and and uh, they would they do work and uh, and everything else. So so, but the X-ray was different. And the reason we selected X-ray is, is that for obvious reasons, when you're going to the other end of the alphabet, we couldn't call it Zulu. <laughs> we didn't want to call it Yankee. And the next letter in the alphabet was X-ray. So if you hear about all of these different uh, ideas as to why X-ray was chosen, it's simply that. And so we, we built the new prison on the site of the former X-ray, Camp X-ray. Um, we built it. Um, and it was built quickly, and the visuals were not good. Essentially, it was uh, eight by eight cages on concrete floors. Uh, if you had to go to the bathroom, obviously you uh, you had to be taken by a guard and taken to a porta potty. Um, it was uh, 
uh, for that reason, for a lot of reasons, how we had to feed and how we had to do everything else, it took a lot of people to run it. But it satisfied the initial requirement. Uh, within a month of being there, we recognized that it was not going to be uh, adequate for our needs. Now, initially, at when the Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld came down there, he said, we'll be out of here in six months. You know, de de Design it for a six-month design. Well, it didn't take very long to realize that it was going to be a lot longer than six months. And uh, so we started bringing in containers, and we moved. Uh, we began the process of building another uh, detention facility uh, on what was called Radio Range, and that's where the current site is now. And we used containers that we had prefabbed elsewhere and then brought in, because everything in Guantanamo has to be brought in via barge or airplane. Uh, it's a unique site. Um, it, of course, everything overlooks it, that overlooks it on the hills all the way around our Cuban property. Uh, at one point, I was told, select the site so that it, uh, it cannot be observed by the Cubans. And I went back to them and I said, there is no site like that in Guantanamo. Uh, also, when uh, uh, we did the first interviews from the reporters, I was told that I was not to allow the reporters to take any pictures of the detention facility. So they immediately, the reporters, CNN immediately put in a team into Cuba. They went to the uh, dollar bar that overlooks uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the naval base, probably had themselves a margarita or, uh, and uh, got excellent pictures, which they then combined with the, uh, the, uh, uh, the interview, interviews that were being done uh, at Guantanamo. Uh, when I was called by the Pentagon to complain that I had allowed them to take the pictures, I explained that they went through Cuba. And then uh, the response I got was, we're going to complain to the Cuban government for them allowing access of these people. And I said, so you're going to complain that they have a more open public affairs policy than we do. Well, they decided it was perhaps not a good idea. So anyway, we've got the Cuba, uh, we've got the, uh, the, the first hundred, uh, detainees there. There's a lot of questions about what they are and who they are. Uh, there's also uh, uh, even what to call them. Initially, the proper right. term is enemy prisoners of war. They didn't, uh, you know, there's the big policy issue, you know, are they really enemy prisoners of war? The probably the most critical thing is that I received was guidance that I was to be guided by the Geneva Conventions, but not necessarily have to follow them. And what did, what did you think that meant? It, well, as my lawyer said, it means absolutely nothing. Because I asked that same question. It's an excellent question, Cody. And I asked that question when I got the guidance of my lawyer. And he said, it means absolutely nothing, General. If you do something wrong, they'll hang you for it. And otherwise, you have no guidance to go on. Hmm. So I, uh, uh, and uh, it was Alberto Gonzalez that made that decision. So I, uh, uh, this made a personal decision that I would follow the Geneva Conventions. I, uh, I instructed my entire staff to read the Geneva Conventions. And I told them that I would uh, be, uh, if we departed from the Geneva Conventions, it would be my decision and my decision alone that the buck stopped there. Right. So there were several areas where we did depart from the Geneva Conventions. Uh, the Geneva Conventions was written uh, uh, for a European theater. So one of the things in the convention is that we were supposed to heat the uh, cells. Uh, I made a decision not to heat the cells. 
the uh, another requirement was that uh, we were to uh, pay them according to their rank in Swiss francs. Well, since none of them would acknowledge what their rank was, or even that they were involved in, in the issue, there was no way I could pay them, or that I was. Uh, another requirement uh, was that we would house the guards in the same conditions as the detainees. I wasn't going to lock my guards up. And then the fourth thing, and the fourth area that I, de that I deviated uh, from the uh, Geneva Conventions is that I was to give them musical instruments. And I made the decision not to give them musical instruments. But in all of the, the significant things, I, uh, I said, we are going to follow the Geneva Conventions. Uh, Particularly common Article 3. Yeah, yes. Um, at the same time, I was getting a lot of visitors. Uh, in addition to all of the, uh, the press, uh, which was on a, uh, 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 a, about a 48-hour cycle. They would come in every 48 hours, a new batch of press, both domestic and international. Uh, and they'd stay for 36 hours. So you'd fly one group out and another one would come in. Uh, the, uh, the only uh, uh, two, the, the, CNN kept a permanent reporter there, and then Miami Herald, Carol Rosenberg. Uh, so what you had is what I called the media worm of the Ouroboros. I mean, <laughs> it, it just kept on and on and on. And I was expected by the Pentagon to brief them personally each time they came in. So it was sort of the bet your stars hour. You can't make sure that I didn't say anything wrong. Um, there were a lot of people coming in from other, I mean, there was, there, we had, of course, the, uh, uh, our elected officials, senators and congressmen, plane loads of them came in. And in the most part, they were not helpful. Because when they talked to the young troops, you know, you'd get words, and by the way, on both sides of the aisle, you know, uh, they'd get them telling these young soldiers and Marines, you know, if, if uh, you know, you're a great American hero, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do, and oh, by the way, if I had these sons of bitches, I'd line them up against the wall and I'd shoot them. Well, I'd have to undo all of that damage after they left and tell them, you know, we don't line people up against the wall, we don't shoot them, you know, we don't do these things. Uh, the Secretary of Defense came down twice while I was there. Um, we brought in the uh, ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, initially, when they requested it, and I sent the request forward, uh, the Pentagon, actually, the, the, sec the Secretary, denied it. And that was a controversial decision. Very controversial decision. Uh, the second time they requested, they went through the Southern Command and... Uh, we didn't ask permission. We just brought them in. And I actually thought I was going to lose my job over that. But I really wasn't particularly worried about it because the logic was that uh, if we're telling the world that we're treating these people fairly but unwilling to let the an organization uh, that the military trains with regularly, uh, when we do an operation or a major exercise, we often have an ICRC person there. This is the way we to uh, instruct us on how to handle and manage enemy prisoners of war. Right. And, uh, so it 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 uh, it seemed ludicrous to me that suddenly that we would not fight as we'd been trained. And uh, uh, when the secretary came down the second time, he asked to speak to the senior member of the ICRC, and it was a private meeting. I was not present there. But when he came out, he was convinced that they were there for the right reasons. 
and uh, so nothing further came of it. Um, the individuals that came in uh, were uh, ultimately I, when I, I had thir 300 by the time I left, uh, it was an even 300 from 33 different nations. Uh, many of them had picked up on the battlefield uh, with genuine U.S. $100 bills serialized. Uh, I was very careful to maintain a chain of custody on everything we picked up. But a lot of them came in with really questionable reasons as to why they were in Guantanamo. Uh, we had one that had been determined by, under, by two competent psychiatric review boards in Afghanistan to be just, he was crazy, schizophrenic. Uh, and they sent him to me, and he was extraordinarily disruptive. And I'm sure they sent him to me because he was disruptive in Afghanistan. And I called the Pentagon, and I said, uh, why is this man here? If you think you're going to get intelligence from him, he has no grasp of reality. You know, he's actually, he actually spoke some English. He kept claiming he was Donald Duck. <coughs> and I said, if you're going to charge him with war crimes, I said he was picked up uh, naked on the battlefield with a Kalashnikov rifle and a white bird feather. That's all he had. I mean, uh, you are probably uh, any competent uh, uh court martial or court is probably going to declare him insane. Yeah. I said, so why is he here? And there was a resounding silence. And it took almost uh, eight months to get him out of there. Because I used to say it takes a, a captain to make the decision to put a detainee on the plane. It takes the President of the United States to make the decision to send him back. At the same time, we had some real bad people in there. But we didn't know who they were. And we, frankly, had done a horrible job of sorting in Afghanistan. Uh, as you know, Afghanistan is a tribal culture. So one of the first things we did is we scanned Afghanistan, thousand to twenty-five thousand dollars for bad guys. And uh, if you have a tribal chieftain that gets that word, and the first thing that's going to go through his mind is, well, I've got somebody on the other side of the mountain that's a different tribe that I hate, that uh, I've been fighting his family for generations. I'm going to tell these people he's a bad guy, and I'm going to rat him out. So in many times we put people on the plane that were less worse than the guys that were not as bad as the guys that ratted them out. Right. And, um, you know, I think the numbers pretty well speak for themselves. The um, um, Of those that we brought to Guantanamo, over 500 have been returned to their country of origin without any action whatsoever. Uh, so I think it's the numbers speak for themselves that the sorting was, was, was very bad. Currently, uh, we have 55 or 56 uh, detainees who have been cleared for release uh, without charge of the 122 remaining. Um, some of those detainees that have been cleared have been in Guantanamo for over a decade. Mm. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. On that note, actually, um, you recently authored a piece in Politico called, and I quote, I helped create Gitmo. Uh, Now I want to shut it down. Can you walk us through some of your reasons for wanting to, to close the prison facility? Uh, yes, I can, Cody. Um, uh, the, the, you know, there's, there's two primary reasons and one tertiary reason uh, why I think the, the uh, uh, facility should be closed. I'm going to start with the least consequential reason first. It's extraordinarily expensive to operate it. Everything has to be brought there by barge. Uh, it is high-maintenance. Uh, you know, the figures you can argue about whether it's 2 million or 2.2 million per, per annum per prisoner or 3 million per annum per prisoner. That's still a lot of money when the average supermax prison is $78,000 per, per annum per prisoner. And I can't remember when the last person broke out of a supermax. So what are we accomplishing by running this place? But that's actually the least consequential reason. The fact that the American people and the taxpayers are paying a lot of money to keep these folks there. There's two consequential reasons that, uh, that I think that we need to consider, uh, and, I, and I consider them equally compelling. Uh, the first is the, uh, the human rights issue. You know, this is not what America stands for. Uh, we claim that we stand for the rule of law. We claim that, we, uh, are on, uh, that, we, uh, that the Constitution means something. And if we're going to have a place like Guantanamo, then what we also have to acknowledge is that the oath that people like me took and take every single time we're... we're uh, uh, promoted, you know, uh, defend, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, is, uh, is, stops at the water's edge. Hmm. And I don't think our Constitution stops at the water's edge, at least in terms of the way we need to comport ourselves as, uh, uh, as both military and U.S. government officials, those that have been elected by the American people. So I think this is extraordinarily important from a human rights standpoint. But there's also, I think, an operational reason that we need to close Guantanamo. It feeds directly into the enemy narrative that, uh, that we are, uh, uh, you know, uh, cruel people with two, with, with two uh, sets of rules, one for us and one for everybody else. And I don't think it's any uh, uh, accident. That the uh, that the innocents that have been uh, killed by ISIS were wearing orange jumpsuits, you know, they're sending a message. And by having Guantanamo, what we do is we feed that that narrative. We actually are helping the jihadists, and and I don't intend to help the jihadists. I think they need to be defeated, and they need to be defeated as quickly as possible. And Guantanamo is serving as a recruiting tool uh, for those jihadists. And so to push back on that a little bit, um, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican mm-hmm. of Arkansas, uh, recently in a, a in a hearing on the Senate Armed Services Committee said that the argument that Guantanamo Bay, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, feeds into the recruitment narrative is, quote, a pretext for a political decision. I think he needs to take a look at the jihadist blogs and what they're do- using and sending to young Americans to recruit them. 
Right. You know, uh, and, and by the way, it, it, you know, it there is a certain political component to it. He's right in that sense. Essentially, what they're what the jihadists are doing are politicizing uh, young Americans and people from other countries and getting them to go and join uh, ISIS or ISIL. Uh, so uh, I think he's making his own argument for closing the place. One of the things that I think is pretty uh, surprising is 13 years on um, from when the, the facility was set up at Guantanamo Bay, um, Americans tend to still overwhelmingly support keeping the facility open. What is it that appeals to people? What do you think contributes to this high level of support? Yeah. I think as Americans, we've been made afraid. Uh, we, we, uh, we chose Guantanamo and we did some of the things that we did early on in terms of policy decisions because we were afraid. Uh, and there, there is a political narrative that tries to work on that, that fear. Uh, you know, one of the things that would be useful, Cody, is to take a look and ask yourself, and by the way, when I say these things, I'm not diminishing the danger of ISIS or ISIL or, or, or jihadists, uh, crazies across the, the world in terms of their, their existential threat to America. I'm not diminishing that. But if you also look at, if you're not wearing a U.S. military uniform, your chances of being killed by a terrorist are relatively low compared to your chances of being dying of cancer, being killed in a U.S. auto accident, uh, being hit by lightning, and you can go through a whole number of other ways to die. Right. And yet this seems to be something that everybody is frightened about. And, you know, I would like to think that America is better than that and bigger than that, that we can uh, make these decisions not out of fear, but out of a recognition of what this country stands for in terms of its rule of law and its adherence to that remarkable document that is the Constitution of the United States of America. So uh, part of the problem, too, is it's been around a long time. It's our new normal. The American people are comfortable with Gitmo because they know very little about it. Uh, but at the same time, I think historians are not going to be kind to us. And I think they are going to wonder, what were the American people thinking? And uh, I would hope that America is better than the polls are saying. You know, you touched on this a little bit about the, the, high, the, the comparative risk of yeah. uh, the ways that an American might be killed or might die. 17,000 homicides in the United States every year. Um, when that violence becomes political, uh, it seems that the perception changes um, about the threat factor there. Do you have thoughts on what contributes to that? Yes. Politicians are very good at changing perceptions. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a certain element in our, uh, in, in our political culture on both sides of the aisle uh, that uh, tries to get votes based upon fear. You know, uh, after 37 years in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, I was in the business of risk management. Uh, most of the things that we were asked to do uh, by uh, our, our government in, uh, involved some risk. And you make a calculated risk assessment and you do those things to ensure that the sons and daughters of uh, America that have sent them into uniform and sent them out there, that, uh, that, that they have a reasonable expectation of getting back. 
so, you know, when we make decisions, we don't make them out of fear. We make them out of a just a calculated assessment of what the risk is and how we should manage that risk. In a recent letter to the Senate, you called for the Senate to avoid passing legislation that bars the closure of Gitmo uh, and instead require the administration to present Congress with a responsible plan mm -hmm. for shuttering the base. Do you have thoughts as to what that yeah. plan might entail? I sure do. And, and, and you know, this is one area where uh, the, uh, the Republican-led uh, Senate, particularly Senator McCain, has called repeatedly for a plan from the administration. And, uh, and I think he's right in calling for that plan. I may not uh, agree with everything that, that has been done uh, by, our, by our elected representatives, uh, but I think asking the administration for a, a comprehensive plan to do something this significant is, is a reasonable request. Uh, if such a plan were presented, uh, that plan should include, among other things, a plan for uh, a, a movement of those that have been cleared by competent uh, interagency authority. And by the way, there's, there's six agencies that are involved in looking at each of these detainees to make sure that, that, that with the best possible, you, know, you can't predict with 100% uh, accuracy that somebody is not going to be a recidivist. But, you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, it, there's a pretty long list of people that have to put their names on a document before somebody is, turn, is turned loose. So that group, which I said was 55 or 56, need to be returned either to their country of origin or to a third country that's willing to accept them. In some cases, admittedly, that's tough because the, the largest of that group are Yemenis, and the, Yemen, uh, the Yemeni governor, government, of course, is, uh, is, uh, is a mess right now. But that plan is going to have to have something in there that says how we're going to work that particular number down. And in my view, they are the most problematic in terms of human rights issues because we've already said they didn't do anything or they were just foot soldiers. Hmm. And uh, they got swept up in the, in the chaos of the battlefield. The remainder, and some of these people are really bad people. Uh, they need uh, to be uh, put under a federal court system and their guilt or innocence determined. Our military commissions have done a, a very poor job of, of doing this. If you look at the federal court system and their experience with terrorists in the court system, some of whom have been captured overseas and some of whom are, are, are uh, third country nationals, somehow or another, we've done a pretty effective job of locking up bad guys. Not so with the military commissions. And I'm not blaming the lawyers that are down there, but you know, Guantanamo is a tough place to get to, a tough place to work in. And um, in some cases, they don't have much to work with. And, and so uh, I think there's a disinclination to uh, put these people under the spotlight and say, well, gee, what do we have on them? In some cases, it's not very much. But I think the court systems is the way to go. And that would mean that they would have to be brought to this country and incarcerated in U.S. Uh, prisons, either military prisons or federal prisons, and taken here. But if we did that, essentially the visual that is Guantanamo, that feeds into the narrative of the violent jihadists, and I'll say Islamic jihadists because they perverted Islam. They don't represent what the majority of Muslims believe, but you know they, they are what they are. Uh, these people need to be uh, to have their, their narrative and their talking points taken away from them. 
we can't kill our way out of this fight. What we have to do is, is that we need to create a situation where uh, they are not uh, an organization that people voluntarily go to join. Uh, we need to disenfranchise them. We need to destroy their credibility. That's the way we're going to win because uh, we can't kill our way out of it. We can defeat them on the battlefield. You know, there's a there's a uh, there's a famous uh, comment one time by a uh, uh, that uh, a general was reported to have told this Viet Cong commander after the after Vietnam. You know, you you you. You never beat the U.S. military on the battlefield, to which he responded, you're absolutely correct, but that's irrelevant. Uh, and and uh, so we need to make sure we win this fight. Uh, you know, it's, and, you know, and to that same comment, you know, uh, when I was working with the, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the young soldiers and Marines who were uh, given the mission to guard these detainees. And I did that for a reason. I would show up at all hours of the night unannounced and I'd come out there and and part of it was is I wanted to make sure that the rules were being followed as you know if uh, uh, the, the terrible things that happened in Abu Ghraib you know one of the uh, uh, the uh, uh, findings in the Taguba report was that uh, uh, senior leadership wasn't present during a lot of times in that prison uh, I, I showed up a lot, and I'd talk to the young Marines and soldiers because they had a tough job. And uh, after they got comfortable with me, sometimes they'd just say, General, how come we're treating these people so well? They wouldn't treat us that well. You know that, General, which is a tough thing for a 20-year-old kid to say to a general. And I always used to respond the same way to them. I said, you know what, soldier or Marine, you're absolutely correct they wouldn't treat us this well. But if we treat them like they would treat us, we become them. So I'm curious what we do with the detainees who perhaps <clears throat> haven't been cleared by a periodic review board and may not necessarily be someone that we can easily prosecute. What should we do with those detainees? Well, that's a great question, Cody. You know, um, when the, uh, the Taliban five were released in exchange for Bull Birdall. None of those individuals had been cleared by a periodic review board. I actually questioned the administration's decision to send them back because one, they jumped over the line, ahead of line of people that were clearly much more innocent than they were. The Taliban five were not innocent by any means. Uh, so perhaps we ought to have used the Taliban five rule. If they're not any worse than the Taliban Five, maybe we need to bite the bullet, turn them loose. We've got pretty good biometrics on them, and we've got the best military in the world, and tell them, okay, you got a choice. You can go home. Uh, you can start a bakery. You can uh, uh, you can go out and and run a you know run run a business. Uh, you can go to work, or you can go back to the fight. And if you do, we'll find you and we'll kill you. And you're prepared to see that recidivism rate on that group, you would assume, would be a lot higher. I think it would be um, a higher recidivism rate. You know, the recidivism rate, Cody, initially on the group that was released during the Bush administration was, uh, was uh, you know, it, and the numbers you get are all over the map first. Right. Uh, and, and part of the reason for that, it all depends on what you call recidivism. If you're 
clearly a recidivist, that, uh, somebody that is actively engaged in fighting or helping the enemy is a recidivist. If you take a phone call from an old uh, uh, compadre who's trying to get you to go back in the fight, and it's picked up by NSA, because you answered the phone, does that make you a recidivist? Under some rules, it does. We got better at screening. So during the past six years, uh, the recidivism rate of those released has been much lower, estimated some t somewhere around about 6%, maybe lower, maybe higher. Um, because there's been a lot of work done to make sure they understand what will happen to them. But there is going to be some recidivism. And I get back to my comment about managed risk. There is going to be some risk. But I think that the risk that we would, uh, we would uh, sustain is acceptable if we can return to what we say we are as a people and as a country. So can you talk about the difficulty of, of restraining bad policy or promoting good policy in a time of a, a very difficult security environment where the government feels a responsibility to respond quickly and to respond forcefully yeah. um, to, to protect the country? Um, how do we go about avoiding kind of bad security decisions making the right decisions, yeah. and ultimately, was Guantanamo Bay and the issues that have surrounded it, were they avoidable? Yes. Uh, I'll, st I'll answer your last question first. They were avoidable. But your more important question, and it is an excellent question, is how do we avoid these problems in the future? The advice that I would have for both our elected officials and our senior military leaders is this. When you have to make a decision, make a decision that is consistent with the, the rules, the policies, and the documents that have been created during, that were not during times when we were afraid. You know, the Geneva Conventions, the Constitution of the United States, those incredible documents. When you make a decision because you are afraid, and you're afraid that you may lose your job because the electorate thinks that you're not doing everything that you should do, uh, that's the wrong calculus to use. There are worse things in the world than being fired with honor. Uh, I, my advice to any elected official or any senior military advisor would be to adhere to the precepts of who we are as a people, why we claim we claim American exceptionalism, but we don't think about that very much. And if we truly are going to talk the talk, we have to walk the walk as well. And that sometimes entails tough decisions, decisions that may cause you to be fired, uh, decisions that may cause you to lose your job. There are worse things than those, than those that happen. And, you know, at the end of, the, at the end of the, the, your life, uh, when you're someplace in a cemetery, uh, nobody's going to... Uh, you don't want to be remembered for making clear blunders out of fear. You want to re be remembered for someone that upheld the ideals of America. Thank you very much, General. Thank Appreciate you. your time. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare podcast on your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, Meerkat, and any other way you can. Thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 